Hello and welcome to the final of a three-part series on the latest atopic dermatitis treatments from Medthority. In this podcast, experts Professor Jacob Thyssen and Professor Diego Torres will discuss the integration of new atopic dermatitis treatments into clinical practice. Hello and welcome to this podcast on atopic dermatitis. My name is Jacob Thyssen. I'm a professor of dermatology from Copenhagen in Denmark. And together um, with me in the, uh, in the room today, I have Professor Tiago Torres from Porto, Portugal. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob, for, for having this opportunity to discuss with you uh, atopic dermatitis and new treatments for atopic dermatitis. Yes, and I'm very excited to discuss with you. I know you have a very a long-lasting interest and experience in treating patients with all kinds of immune-mediated diseases, including psoriasis and, and, of course, atopic dermatitis. Now, what we're going to discuss today is really how we can integrate new AD treatments into clinical practice. So that's the purpose of the talk, and I'm very happy to have you with me here to discuss this. So the treatment landscape in Europe is really busy at this time. We have dupilumab, which was approved in most countries in 2017-18. Bericidinib uh, introduced more than a year ago now in many countries, including yours and mine. And then we have a few new ones, uh, Trilokinumab. Um, I know it's negotiated prices where you practice the same in my country. And then we have Upadacidinib, Apricidinib. So basically two different drug classes, biologics and JAG inhibitors. And, and let me just hear you, how is it done in your hospital? Will you go straight to a biologic or do you go straight to baricidinib? Well, first of all, I think we're living exciting times for atopic dermatitis. Uh, we're changing the lives of our patients with these, uh, with these agents since 2017 with approval of the Piluma. But with all these new agents, we'll have more um, changes, more, uh, more options to treat our patients. Well, in clinical practice, at least in my country, uh, the reimbursement is only after using um, a conventional systemic therapy, at least one. So for patients with moderate to severe topic dermatitis, we usually start uh, with one of these uh, drugs, usually cyclosporin. But if the patient is not uh, responding uh, as we want, or if the patient is not happy, uh, or if, we, if the patient has a side effect, we are changing for these new drugs. And... Um, uh, we, we have been using the Pilumab, no, now we are using also baricitinib. Uh, there are a difference of prices, and in, in Portugal, the use of these drugs is, is very cost-driven. So we are using more baricitinib as a first line, uh, but of course, if the patient has some uh, um, as a clinical indication for the Pilumab, we are treating with the Pilumab. Okay, that's, that's very useful information. I can tell you, as again, it's the same in my country, in Denmark. But let's try to, you know, to include the, the listeners of this and try to practice dermatology or medicine in a setting where there are no requirements from authorities. We can use whatever drug we want to go to. That's, that's the discussion platform for today. So when you see a patient with moderate to severe AD, um, with no cardiovascular risk factors, um, let's say mid-30s, um, a few allergic comorbidities, what do you do? <laughs> I would say that for this patient, we can use both class of drugs. Um, I, 
For JAK inhibitors, it's true there are some clinical characteristics that probably if the patient has, we should avoid. Okay, patients with uh, obesity, older patients, patients with a history of thromboembolic events, uh, maybe we should be careful using JAK inhibitors in these patients. But in a patient like you described, I think we could use um, a JAK inhibitor or uh, um, a biologic agent. Of course, if the patient has uh, asthma, for example, we know that the Pilumab uh, is approved for asthma. So maybe in this patient would be, would be better to use uh, uh, the Pilumab. But if the patient, if you want a, a, a very fast onset of response, for example, for, example, for pruritus, maybe a JAK inhibitor would be better for that patient. These are very good points. And if we could, I can just uh, get us to just discuss a little bit around the comorbidities, because I hear the same argument everywhere I go. If the patient has comorbid asthma, why not go for the Pilumab? And to me, it makes good sense. It's a logical conclusion. But to my knowledge, we don't know anything about the severity of asthma in patients with AD. So it's more, is it really an advantage? Is it really something that we should, you know, go far to reach? Or is it not an argument really to choose the Pilumab? Well, I completely agree with you. I think it's a, if it's severe asthma, I think there uh, the Pilumab may have a role, may, will, will help improving asthma for sure. But most of the, no, not most, but yeah, most of the patients have usually mild asthma. So, and they are controlled with the inhaled therapy. So I agree with you. I think, it, I think it really depends on the patient we have, on the characteristics of the patient. With new drugs, we are going to more personalized therapy. So, but I agree with you. It's, uh, comorbidities are important. Uh, well, but most of these drugs we can use in all patients, only if the patient really have absolute contraindication. I completely agree with that conclusion. And I'm not saying that I'm not going for dupilumab in the patient with comorbid asthma. Perhaps I'm just reaching out to, you know, any researcher out there, we need some data because I'm not aware of any data on the severity of asthma and AD. But you can also come with the same argument. What if you have comorbid alopecia areata? Would it then be better, you know, let's go for baricitinib. It has the indication now compared to, let's say, aparicitinib that does not have the indication. I mean, these are subtle, differences and the discussions and, and I have I don't have a good answer to this because we don't have the data. Uh, yes, I think um, now with these new drugs we really can of course they can be used in all patients but with s s some specifics probably some of the drugs are better. You, you, you're talking about uh, atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata probably would be better to the JAK inhibitor. Baricitinib has been recently approved for alopecia areata. Um, I remember a patient that had um, atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. It was mild to moderate, but I used, uh, in my case, baricitinib. Baricitinib is not approved for psoriasis, has been studied, has been to be effective, although with higher doses. But if I had upadacitinib that is approved for uh, psoriatic arthritis, probably this patient would be a, a good option. So uh, I would say that uh, there are patients where we can use any of the drugs,
but others because of some specifics of this patient, some characteristics. I thought we are, we are lucky now that we can use different drugs for specific patients. I agree. So just to, you know, loop back to what, with my provocative uh, initial question, actually, it seems that we are at a point where patients can, with different profiles, can be treated in perhaps a better way with one drug, drug over another. So if we try to continue that elaboration, we have now provided a small overview of some of the nuances with, with comorbidities. Perhaps, you know, dupilumab is the better one for the allergic comorbid patient. Perhaps the JAG inhibitors will be the better choice for the patient with, let's say, alopecia areata, rheumatoid arthritis, other arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease. I think there, there's a pattern there. Um, but what about you? You mentioned the itchy dominant phenotype in AD. What, what do you have any considerations there? Well, uh, pruritus is the worst. Uh, is the worst symptom for the patient? Is probably responsible for many of the problems of the patient, of the the impact of the disease, both physical, uh, psychological, emotional, social. So it's uh, probably the response for the high burden of the disease. So it's very important to improve uh, pruritus in these patients. Of course, it differs between patients, patients with more pruritus than others. All drugs have shown to improve pruritus. Check inhibitors in a faster way. We see this in the clinical trials. But if we see uh, in the clinical trials the use of biologic and also in our everyday patients, the biologics um, work well in pruritus a little bit more slowly, but at the end, they are well controlled with, uh, with biologic agents. So I think, um, fortunately, these, these, all these agents, both classes, show to improve quite, quite well pruritus, a little bit more slowly the skin. I don't know if you see this, but patients start to feel well better before than seeing the skin becoming better. But, um, but fortunately, these drugs clearly uh, work on pruritus. I, I agree. And, and I think there are two important um, observations I've made from the clinical data. And one of them is what you just said there, that actually there is an itch reduction that is independent of eczema reduction. So it's, it's a, you know, a peripheral and even central itch reducing effect. I think that's important and really a beautiful thing with the JAG inhibitors. And the other one is from the head to head trials with dupilumab. We can see that the itch reduction is more prominent and continues to be more prominent. So, so if we just look at the easy scores, you know, we have a very fast reduction with dupatacidinib and aprocidinib compared to dupilumab, but over time, you know, the 24 week trial against dupatacidinib, they end up at the same point in, in EC75, for example. But looking at itch reduction, you know, the, the difference is maintained actually, the very deep itch reduction um, and uh, outcomes. So, so I think for that patient, which is about to jump out of the window, you want something fast and something effective to reduce their itch, the JAG inhibitor is the go-to drug. Yeah, and we can probably understand that with mechanism of action because many of the cytokines that are uh, important for pruritus, uh, the JAK inhibitors, uh, they, they, they signal through JAK stat pathway, um, R31, for example, and JAK inhibitors 
they are um, targeting and inhibiting more of these uh, cytokines that are important for pruritus. So it probably explains uh, what you have mentioned. Yeah. Now, um, so just to you know make some some near conclusions all the time. We you have you have described here the allergic comorbidities and uh, you know inflammatory comorbidities that can influence your, your treatment choice, and then also the itch. What about safety? You you started talking about that in the beginning. Um, could you describe the patients that we should not treat with a JAG inhibitor once again, please? Yes. Um, well, there is some safety issues regarding uh, JAK inhibitors. It's true that I think there's some buzz regarding JAK inhibitors that comes from another disease. It comes from another drug, tofacitinib in a, um, a rheumatoid arthritis patients. Uh, but there are some safety uh, issues that we should be careful. Um, so I, I would say that in, in, in elderly, elderly patients where the, the risk of infections is a little bit higher, maybe JAK inhibitors are not the best option. Um, the thing about the risk of uh, thromboembolic events uh, that may exist in this class of drugs, we don't know if it really is a risk in atopic dermatitis patients, uh, but probably in patients that have risk factors for thromboembolic disease, maybe we should not use these drugs. Um, and it's mainly this, of course, if the patient has severe hepatic disease, probably should not use, um, but I think it's mainly the risk of infection um, and uh, the risk of the thromboembolic uh, disease. Yeah, so, so I agree, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's, if you will, uncertain times, the FDA, the EMA, they are looking at JAG inhibitors in looking at this as class effect. Um, it's really the long-term uh, adverse event risk which we should have our attention. And, and I feel to a high degree very safe working with JAG inhibitors since there is uh, such attention on it. Um, I think right now, the way I see the patients that we should not treat, that if, if they're obese, if they have, you know, as you said, the personal history of uh, VT or first degree relative, or family history of VTE, that is really a no-go for me. Um, and then I think the patient that has, you know, accumulated cardiovascular risk yeah. uh, factors, I try to steer away and take a biologic, to be honest. I completely but, agree, yeah. Yeah, but, um, but I think also in my patients, this is not a great concern. So I remember in the beginning when I started prescribing, I, I, I saved a lot of time in my consultation to be ready to go through all the, the risks. And most of my patients are like, fine, I, I, you know, I trust you make the right decision. Uh, and, you know, these SMPCs, they're always full of, of, of dangerous things. It's, it's, uh, it's fine by me. So I don't know if that's the same experience you have had with your patients. Yes, completely. And this population is, is clearly different from the population uh, with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, they are younger, um, uh, less obese. So most of the patients, I didn't have this issue. Of course, we should be careful. We should talk with the patient, understand the clinical history of the patient. But I don't really think that the, 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 the problem is as big as it may be in other diseases. No, 
it's 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 also the the you know the risk the absolute risk how many patients will you need to treat for a long time before you see one event but but i guess to me you know one event is one too many so really that's why i think it's important that we identify the patients that we should not treat and um and, and i think we have done that um let me let me ask you another thing around the uh, the jag inhibitors do you see it as a replacement for prednisolone is that something which is operational if i see sorry if you can see the jag inhibitors you know they're fast acting they're itch reducing can they replace prednisolone so is it possible for you to use you know upadacitinib or baricitinib instead of prednisolone your patients in the future <laughs> yeah. it's a nice question why well, we need data right because the data we have is to use continuously uh, we know that if we stop the disease reoccurs but this kind of uh, drugs with this uh, efficacy profile well is tentative for us to use on an on-demand basis in some patients because not all patients have continuous uh, chronically severe disease we have many patients that have flares then they become better and do they, these patients need continuous treatment? Yes. So these kind of drugs that they switch on, switch off, may be interesting uh, to treat our patients uh, this way, uh, in flares on demand. I don't have experience, I have to say. I don't know if you have. Um, but, um, but I think it may be a good option. for some I, think, I think actually, and I do have some experience, it's actually, it works. And I think it's a nice way to, you know, reduce the risk time. Now we talked about what is the risk to being on a JAG inhibitor. That's a way to, to reduce it. So, you know, that patient that can, you know, more follow their disease activity and then, you know, adapt with uh, when to treat and when not to treat, I think that's a good candidate for a JAG inhibitor. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. I think it's something that with time, all of us will, uh, We'll undo it. Yeah. Then, then finally, let me ask you if we have time here. Treat to target. You know, that's something very hot. It came from psoriasis, first into dermatology. And is this something you use in your clinic? Do you, with your patient, define a treatment target? I think it's very important. I, just, I think in medicine, we should always have a target for our patients. And... Um, we can, we can do it in, a, in diverse ways, but I think it's very important. Well, in these patients, I usually try to evaluate skin and symptoms. Uh, in symptoms, I evaluate pruritus in an easy way, in an NRS scale. Uh, I ask the patient. And in the, in the skin, we, I usually use easy. For, for these patients, I always try that these patients have a, a, a low pruritus, low than four is what we see in the, in the treat to target uh, um, consensus. So I, I think it's okay for the patients and usually easy 75. So if the patient is, is, is better in the skin, but I always like to ask the patient, are you happy with the treatment? Because I think this open question usually helps us a lot. That's, I completely agree. And if I can just add one final comment is that 
I think it's more and more operational to go for an absolute easy score. So let's say an absolute easy score of two, three, four, something. But but you know that comes down to the happy patient, right? Yeah. So Professor Torres, thank you so much. We have to to end this session. It was a pleasure discussing discussing these new treatments with you and. Uh, to everyone else, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you'll have a wonderful day, but uh, I just wanna you know, um, get your attention to the fact that you can learn more about atopic dermatitis in the learning zone on methoridy.com. Uh, so that is M-E-D-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Thanks for listening, bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on our three-part series on latest atopic dermatitis treatments. We hope you have enjoyed our podcasts. Head to medthority.com for a full overview of atopic dermatitis and the treatment landscape.